0: Today on the Tearsheet Podcast.
1: They really weren't underwriting the population Mm -hmm. at all because the population is, especially in traditional banking circles, traditionally viewed as not credit worthy because of their credit score. Because all the customers, for the most part, when we first interact with them, have less than 620 FICO scores. If you're below 620, you're abandoned. In fact, half of our customers have less than a 550 FICO score. Now, all the underwriting algorithms that we suggest to the banks, they, they don't... They don't include any traditional credit scoring. It's all about using alternative data to determine ability and willingness to repay. So th- they haven't been able to underwrite the customer effectively because they they, they, they don't know how to do that.
0: Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Tearsheet Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. OpFi is a fintech platform offering financial products to most Americans. The business was built on a core small-dollar monthly installment loan product for near prime customers. As it goes public, OpFi is expanding its product set into credit cards and payroll deduction products, serving customers with FICO scores under 620 with incomes of $50,000 a year. CEO Jared Kaplan joins me on the podcast to discuss the types of financial products 150 million Americans can use to live their lives and what the alternatives are. We discuss OpFi's growth trajectory and plans for the future as a public company. Lastly, we hit on how the firm differentiates itself from its competitors, including Upstart, which at first blush feels quite similar. Jared Kaplan is my guest today on the Tearsheet Podcast.
1: I'm Jared Kaplan. I am the CEO of OpFi. We are a financial technology platform that powers banks to provide credit access to the everyday consumer in this country, and we are building the premier digital financial services destination for this
0: everyday consumer. Awesome, and I know it's a busy time for you. You have a lot going on, don't you?
1: Yeah, uh, we're in the middle of of the de spacking process. Uh, on top of, of managing a rapidly growing profitable business and hiring a bunch of people, and all the complexities complexities mm-hmm. of running a day to day business with uh, the, the the additional. A reality of taking the company public so it's been a crazy couple of months but a lot of fun and um, we're really excited about the future
0: well i guess looking back uh yeah the decision to go that SPAC route like you have any insights to share i guess from from that process
1: yeah totally we um before the pandemic early 2020 the business was uh uh, really executing on all facets and we started to look at our traditional IPO path and we got some inbounds from the SPAC world. I was definitely not an expert. I had heard of SPACs in prior lives. But as we started to dig in the pandemic hit and uh you know, shame on my CFO he didn't have pandemic in the in the budget for <laughs> twenty twenty. So we How could he have been so short-sighted? Yeah, I know. I give them a hard time all the time. So we uh, we dusted off the recession playbook. The business was founded in 2012. We had never been through a cycle. Right. Everyone had always asked us how the business would perform during a cycle. And we would point to all this, this historical data, but we didn't have any data ourselves. So we uh, went into business stabilization mode. It took a good four months to figure out exactly what we had. And uh, we were... Uh, in, in in very good shape um i mean we, we we it played out very counterintuitively than i think we had thought that it would play mm-hmm. out but uh coming out the other side and with with consumer credit a lot stronger than um a typical cycle would uh would, would typically have consumer credit perform we started to uh pick our heads up again and uh and then the SPAC world was just on 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 you know Ultra drive. If you're a financial technology company that's growing rapidly and profitable, so we started to explore that more seriously and met with with many of the players. And then when we looked at it versus the traditional IPO path, it came to three different decision points. One was we thought it'd be a bit more expeditious, mm-hmm. uh, just a faster, more efficient process. Two is we building. Uh, well, that's probably the one thing I got wrong out of the three. Uh, <laughs> I think I think uh, it's faster to get to a, a public announcement. Right. I think that uh, the, the the awkward or unique thing about the SPAC process, unlike a traditional IPO, you, you you announce it, you go on the road, you close it two weeks later. Here, you announce it, and it's four or five, six months later before you close it, and so it just creates a lot more time between when you're out there in the mm. uh, the public and, and when you actually get it closed, which I think is a distraction, but. Um, I think the other two pieces of the decision-making process we, we got right, which is one is we were really able to tell the OpFi story. Uh, historically, the company had been uh, called OpLoans and was focused on a monoline credit access product. We had begun to transform the company to a well-rounded digital financial services platform called OpFi, and this back process allows us to tell that story It also accelerated the rebranding of the company. Mm-hmm. And then the third and most important piece of the partnership with, with, with our SPAC sponsor, FG New America, uh, it's led by Joe Moglia, who's mm-hmm. the former CEO and, and chairman of Ameritrade. He's also the ex-head football coach of, of Coastal Carolina football, which was a tremendous leadership uh, athletic story. And mm-hmm. we were very intrigued to in partner with Joe and his team. Uh, uh, they have a terrific team. Uh, Larry Sweats and Kyle Sermonera are, are seasoned public company investors, and we felt they gave us the guidance and the credibility to be a successful public company, and especially in this space where uh, amplifying our voice is going to be so crucial to getting to the right answer to the customer. Partnering with someone like Joe, who's on CNBC and has tremendous respect and credibility with the public markets, I think was the differentiating factor. And so we uh, we ended up going with those guys, and it's been terrific. They've been Outstanding to work work with, and and looking forward to getting this thing closed in the next couple of weeks, and then put our heads on executing.
0: Yeah, well, well, good luck with that, and thanks for for sharing um, that process with us. Um, can we go back to something you said? You know, the the SPAC or the IPO process itself has, has sort of made the rebranding better. Can we talk about the decision to move from the monoline product to sort of a diversified services company?
1: Yes. Uh, so so there's a hundred and fifty million everyday consumers out there that have less than a thousand dollars of savings. And, and 60 million of them are completely locked out of the credit system. And historically when their car broke down or when they had to go to you know, a doctor for something unexpected medically, and they didn't have the savings, their only options for credit were the markets of last year's or payday loans and not title loans. And so our, our business was initially focused on that 60 million and powering banks, mostly community banks, Or exclusively, I should say, community banks to provide a product to this consumer that is lower cost, a longer term, higher dollar amount than those markets of last resort, structured in a way that should rebuild credit. And we built a fantastic business on that go to market strategy with these incredible Zappos-like customer reviews in a space that has not been known for that historically. And so we're really, really proud of that. And that loyalty and gratefulness that we build at the customer level, and, and we build it because we do a great job with customer service, but also because this is an individual who's got to fix their car to get to work. So they got, you know, they walked into their bank, half of our customers bank at the largest banks in the country. They walk in the bank laughs them out of the, of the bank. Now they go online, they're denied You know, multiple times by other 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 platforms and our bank partners can say yes. And so that gratefulness and loyalty is the first step in what should be a very long customer journey where we're not only facilitating credit access, but we are graduating these customers to mainstream credit. We're ultimately allowing them to build savings and then finally uh, building wealth. And so it's a four prong strategy. It's a decade long vision. It's a lot of work in front of us, but that was you know that's what we're motivated and ambitious to do every day, and so the op loans moniker, uh, which was very adept and, and appropriate for the credit access piece, does not describe the full submission that we're trying to execute now, and uh, and, and therefore the transformation op five.
0: So where do you think you are, Jared, in in that in that transformation? It sounds like it's, it's relatively early on.
1: So uh, it is early. Uh, 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 we've got two additional products that uh, one we've we've recently announced. The other we're going to announce pretty strongly. Uh, we've got a, a product called Salary cap, which is an installment loan that's repaid through payroll deduction, and that's an important repayment mechanism because it's highly secured and it allows you to expand your traditional uh, to your traditional market and go to customers who uh, don't make as much income as uh, the op loans customer does, because that uh, loss rate is so much lower when you receive your repayment through, 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 um, through payroll deduction. So that's a very important next step in, in providing more access. And then the applied credit card launches in the second half of this year. And that's our first graduation product for someone that's performed in a higher cost installment loan to graduate to traditional mainstream credit beyond that. We have plans to wrap around mobile banking, uh, to uh, plug that into our access products, to create a uniform banking experience that incentivizes and and, uh, uh, educates the customer on how to build savings, facilitate savings. And then longer term, if we're successful in that, we'd love to uh, get them their first mortgage and to allow them to invest. And I think one thing that's not understood with the platform is this is not a low income consumer that we are. Typically working with it really mm-hmm. is the median U.S. consumer. That's 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 not that's not well understood under uh, out there. So it's it's someone making fifty grand. They have a job. They have a bank account. We see a number of customers making six figures, but the reality of the country is that savings is is hard. Savings is hard because income has been in flat for decades, mm-hmm. and your traditional cost of living have been increasing. So housing and, and, and child care and education. And healthcare have all been going up, and so it's not necessarily a lone consumer that struggles to save. It's it's actually the vast majority of the country.
0: Um, And so, can we can we talk about the distribution strategy? How do how you get to these customers, and and I guess what your banking partners are looking for um, from you guys?
1: So, so our banking partners they see this widely underserved marketplace, but they lack the in-house expertise to acquire. To use alternative data
0: to underwrite and to service it themselves so were they not underwriting so, this this population at all or they or they had the wrong products for the for the, for these people uh
1: they 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 really weren't underwriting the population mm-hmm. at all because the population is especially in traditional banking circles traditionally viewed as not creditworthy okay. uh, because of their credit score because all the customers for the most part when we first interact with them, have less than 620 FICO scores. If you're below 620, you're a bandit. In fact, half of our customers have less than a 550 FICO score. Now, all the underwriting algorithms that we suggest to the banks, they, they don't they don't include any traditional credit scoring. It's all about using alternative data to determine ability and willingness to repay. So they haven't been able to underwrite the customer effectively because they they. They they don't know how to do that. But unlike your big bulge bracket banks, they have an appetite to figure it out with us because they see that's a way for them to compete. You've got these huge banks that have taken tremendous share. And so the regional and the community banks say, well, this is a hugely underserved marketplace. By partnering with a financial technology company, we can build our business in a in a differentiated manner. And so that's where the, the, the partnerships come into play. Uh, but they do rely on us for all the acquisitions. So you talk about distribution, uh, we have approached it uh, in the opposite way that most in the space historically had approached it. So traditionally, this has been a very heavy direct mail space. Mm-hmm. And we had the opinion early on, in fact, when I first joined, I, mean, I joined we had about 15 people. The company was founded by a family in Chicago, the Schwartz family, which is a storied family. They had built a big call center business called APAC, A-P-A-C. Uh, and the family patriarch, Ted Schwartz, had built that. He'd taken it public. He sold it to J.P. Morgan's private equity group. And his son, Todd Schwartz, brilliantly saw after the Great Recession, all this capital had dried up from uh, mainstream America. And, and there was a better product out there that that could be created. Um, and so I remember when he hired me, and he, they, they had installed this terrific, terrific credit philosophy and customer service philosophy. And then uh, we were talking about the acquisition front and how we were going to uh, step the gas on on growth. Mm-hmm. And and they were doing majority direct mail, and I was like, oh, we can't do direct mail. Like we're a digital first, hundred percent digital company. Like that's old school. He's like, well, you may want to look at the numbers. I mean, direct mail works very well, but from a uh, competitive perspective, we just always felt that anyone can mail the mailbox, and so let's build our our acquisition funnel on other techniques. So it starts with it starts with search engine optimization, customer referrals and email marketing, which all are essentially free from a variable cost perspective. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, we work with 50-plus, I call them strategic marketing partners in that they are platforms like the Lending Trees and the Credit karmas of the world that are in and around this customer and they want to cross-sell a lending solution. But instead of having the customer go through the application process on their site, they're able to refer those customers to our site so they see our and our bank's brands, and that allows us to create a strong relationship. So about 80% of the business is through SEO, email marketing, customer referrals, and the strategic marketer, marketing partners. And only about 20%, actually less than 20% is, is direct mail based. But that allows us to keep a very uh, a strong customer acquisition cost, which is important to making sure the banks can keep their costs down on
0: the product. Have, have you talked about what that customer acquisition cost is?
1: yeah it's about two hundred dollars per customer
0: and what what do direct mailing companies that rely on that i guess what it what it, how much higher is that is the CAC for those guys
1: oh I'd say it's it's fifty to hundred percent more uh wow. for for a traditional
0: direct mail customer okay and it sounds like what you're saying is that's also scalable like you you can continue to ramp that
1: meaning our our current acquisition strategy yes Oh yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, and we're testing new things all the time. There's, there's just, uh, uh, and you have to stay on top that every quarter there are new techniques and how you can get in front of this, this customer. And then ultimately as we build up the other products, making sure you can cross sell. So, uh, we feel very good about the growth. I mean, there is a, you're at a, a, a very interesting inflection point as far as how people are looking for credit access and, uh, the stigma of, you know, walking into a brick and mortar uh, store is, is probably as great as it's ever been. 80% of the customers we see are, are on their mobile phone. And so our growth has been driven by creating a better product uh, that is a much better solution for a large percentage of the population that was traditionally in a market of last resort. And we are taking share from the traditional brick and mortar providers who are in or around the space that can't provide a anonymous uh, anonymous in the sense that no one can see them walk into the store online customer application process.
0: Got it. Uh, and Jared, in the remaining time that we have, I, I'd love to talk to you. I mean, I know that the country is sort of in the midst of, uh, you know, uh, a regime change and a discussion around um, the availability of financial services and, and the cost of those services for, for a broader population. Now, what is your philosophy around that? I know I know, you're dealing with some some legal issues. Um like what? What's the message there that 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 OpFi sort of you know presents to the market? What's the ethos?
1: Well, I think that
0: uh, you know the Biden administration actually provides an opportunity for us
1: in that there should be more regulation and legislation as it relates to ensuring access with the appropriate consumer protection. I think sometimes, especially in the headlines, there's a thought that uh, that that uh, credit access is really available. And that uh, many of these consumers just don't know where to look to get the best product in line with their risk profile. We actually have the data that shows that access doesn't exist for this customer. So as part of the process, we uh, ask the customer if they've originated to us uh, from a non-choice platform. Uh, so if they come to us via SEO or a customer referral, email marketing or direct mm-hmm. mail, we will say, hey, would you like us to do a diligent search on your behalf? And uh, most of the time they say yes, 80, 90% of the time. And uh, only 1% of the time are we able to find them sub 36% APR or what's considered near prime credit, even though we're trying to give it a business away. So every, yeah. every day we're trying to do this, we can't do it. We, there's about 20 near prime lenders on the platform. Uh, and, and only 1% of the time actually does the customer actually close the loan with one of those customers. And it just shows that for this, for this population access doesn't exist. And so if access doesn't exist in that sub 36% population, what's the right answer for the customer? And our point of view with our bank partners has been to uh, facilitate a a credit product that is certainly higher cost in the near prime world, but much better than those markets of last resort and structured in a way that's very financial health. So there are no fees. There's no origination fees. There's no prepayment penalties. Uh, there are no late fees. There are no NSF fees. The banks, we help them report to the three credit bureaus. When you're delinquent, we don't chase you. We call you up. We ask how you're doing. Uh, we're not litigating to collect. There's a a, a huge focus on ability to repay as part of the underwriting algorithms, and so uh, what that ends up resulting is these fantastic customer reviews online. I always tell people like, do not believe a word I say; go see what they say. <laughs> so help. If you're not a customer, you'll understand why someone is so grateful in this in this particular situation. So um, uh, when we when we think about regulation and when we think about uh, the new administration, it's all about using our data to educate. And to get to the right answer, so that customers have access, but they're also appropriately protected. And much like the Credit Card Act helped uh, create a, a clear sandbox for credit card companies, we think the same thing should exist in the small dollar space. And that is a much better way to ensure access with protection than what is sometimes discussed out there. Um, uh, Rate caps is often uh, a conversation that's discussed, and, and and from our point of view. If you cap rates, the demand doesn't 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 change, right? There there is insatiable demand for the products. People have money and they need access. So uh trying to create a rate cap that takes the demand away doesn't solve the problem. And, and, and the reality is the customers go to the unregulated markets, they go to the tribal markets, There's a huge um very legitimate uh, sovereign uh, uh, sovereign lending. Uh, business out there for the Native American tribes, and so we think it's much better better to, to approach it through more regulation. And like any great industry, whether it was Airbnb fighting, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, or whether it's Uber, I think th- this is one of those industries where there's lots of different opinions, but we got to look to the data. We have to look to the realities and then come up with a solution together that I think accomplishes all goals. And so we hope to be thought leaders in that. And we hope being a public company allows us to amplify our voice, use our data, prove that we can graduate the
0: customers to mainstream credit and get to the right answer over time. I appreciate that, you know, that discussion around, around some of the uh, creative tension there. Um, I have one last question for you, Jared, and I, I saw in the, in the SPAC materials, um the mention of of Upstart and sort of the the positioning there. Can you talk about I guess how you differentiate against some of the other players in the market?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, there's there's some fantastic financial technology companies that have come to the public market since we announced our deal this morning. I saw Dave uh, mm-hmm. is rumored to, uh, yeah, they or they may have be, been enough to, be able to go public. You've got um, Upstart, a Affirm. Catapult, SoFi. I mean, we're really trying to build the SoFi for the everyday Is right. it's, it's, it's a really good way to think about it. Sofi's done a great job for the Henrys. The high earners, not yet rich yet, but mm-hmm. no one's really done the end-to-end vision for the everyday consumer. I always joke with my CFO, you know, SoFi put their name on that beautiful building in, in, in uh, Los Angeles, the, the new football. football stadium. I'm oh, trying to get man. them to put our name on Wrigley Field he says we're not ready, not ready to spend the money yet. So that's fine. <laughs> I understand. We've been, we've been gap profitable since 2015. So that, that's, well, I don't know if you should but, trust them um,
0: since he missed the pandemic. So I don't know. Totally.
1: The, yeah the upstart story is a super interesting story. They have uh, really crushed it in, in their public market debut. I have a lot of respect for what they're building. I look at our companies is incredibly similar in the delivery model. Uh, we share a bank partner, Right. We uh, our our um, crown jewel is our decision engine, right? We you know talk about the one point almost one point seven million months that we've now facilitated. The um, uh, the fact that we have uh, over fourteen million repayment events, over seven billion data points, of which we're using best in class AI machine learning to continuously improve the algorithms, so that we can open the credit box of or encourage the banks to open the credit box. Ultimately, it's their decision whether they want to do so or not uh, to provide more and more access at the same or better loss rates. So all that looks similar. The differences are we're we're focused on a uh, slightly less traditionally viewed credit-worthy customer. So they're typically a high 600s FICO customer. We are mid 500s. And then uh, after the bank originates the loan, we've uh, historically – Decided to hold most of the economics on balance sheet versus them who have have sold many loans to the third to, to third parties and institutional investors. Our point of view is just from a profitability and cash flow perspective, you earn about double the unit economics when you um, hold the receivables, mm-hmm. and so um, it ultimately comes down to credit risk one way or the other. If you, if, you, if you sell a loan and and the credit doesn't perform, no one wants to buy them again. If you hold the receivable and uh, the credit performs, then. You generate more cash flow and we can use that cash flow to build out other products in the platform in the future. And um my guess is as we move into some longer term tenured products, we'll do some more of the uh you know, the selling of the SEWs. But um uh, to date, that's been the way that we've monetized the model. So uh, that's the SoFi and the um uh upstart comparison. And then the third one I talked about is Catapult, which is a company that should close their deal. I think actually today they're they're supposed to close their SPAC uh, merger, they're focus on the point of sale space. So they're financing durable goods mm-hmm. at the point of sale for a very similar customer. And it's a space we haven't gotten directly to the point of sale yet. Although it's obviously a hot uh, segment of the marketplace. Totally. That credit card, the offline credit card we're issuing is going to be instant issuance wherever you are. And so it's our first indirect way of getting into point of sale. I think longer term we'll look to, um, to enter that marketplace. Uh, although it's a, a slightly different need for the customer because most, most of the time today, our customers are looking for us to help them with something unexpected that is mm-hmm. more emergent in nature rather than a durable good. So, uh, it's a very interesting landscape. I think, uh, everyone's chasing it from different angles. I, I even look in the credit access space. You've got square that's piloting a small dollar loan through cash app. You've got, uh, you chiming up and you go banks trying to figure out lending to this market. There's a race to round out the product suite, but, um, I think our uh, our platform, our approach, our our history of execution gives us a great chance to be in the hunt. It's a massive market. They're probably the ultimate winners, but you know, we're competitive. We want to win it. So and and the customer will determine who wins it, right? Totally. If they've got they get to make the decision. So if we can provide the greatest value prop, I think we got a really good shot here.
0: Jared Kaplan, thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast today.
1: Thanks so much for having us. Really enjoyed it.